Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108. You're very welcome back. You're listening to our Saturday panel. If you've got any information you want to get into us this afternoon, you can text us using the text number 53106 or you can tweet us as well using the handle at Off the Ball. And I'm delighted to say Colin Keyes, Jack Cooney, and Wayne Kieran's joining me in studio this afternoon. You're very welcome along, lads. How are things? Thank you. So, uh, so we've got two uh, current intercounty managers, two new people in the role, and Colin Keyes with, with the Irish Independent. Uh, Colin, we might just uh, start with you before we get into the grilling of the two new managers in studio here. National League starts this weekend. It doesn't have a lot of fanfare traditionally about, about the place, but there is a sense that when it comes to the football especially, it's probably the best competition we have on our doorstep. Yeah, and in, even the Hurling League uh, has been a terrific competition because of its cutthroat nature. But I think when you're talking about the Football League, for a vast majority of teams, it is their barometer to see how are they improving, how far have they come back. And there are plenty of managers who, is, who would feel uh, that is that it is really their primary competition, their mm. best chance of even some silverware, depending on what division they find themselves. So it's a great barometer to test out improvement. Obviously, the merit-based divisional system allows you to gives you a great insight into into where you really are. Um, you need a bit of luck, obviously, too, to uh, to to navigate with. Do you have four home games as opposed to to three? That's often a, a factor, and especially in Division Three, if you look back at the. The statistics there, you know, you're more likely to uh, to win your home game. There's a two to one chance that you win your home game in that division, but yet yeah, no doubt about it. Since they reverted to uh, a merit-based system uh, after 2007, um, the it, it, the league has really settled down, and I feel that the Division One have maybe got away from the rest more than any any of the other divisions. I think the gap between Division One and Two is greater and I think we may actually see that again if Donegal and Kildare and I think Donegal will definitely go back up but if Galway if Roscommon and Cavan come back down and Donegal and Kildare come back up it will really uh, reinforce that point that Division 1 are just so far away from everybody else and that's that's the maybe the downside of this league system is that is that uh, there there is there is that gap there Having said that, I think there'd be great interest. It's September the 2nd since the All-Ireland final. Uh, that's almost five months without competitive action. Do you have withdrawal symptoms? Uh, not, not really, a little bit. I mean, if you look at the crowds that have been at the uh, some of the games, uh, some of the pre-season games, 11,000 at the McKenna Cup final, uh, I think around six at the Mead Dublin O'Byrne Cup semi-final. I'm not sure what crowd was in. Seven. Parnell seven, Park, seven. Yeah. Great crowd too. And then I was at the Galway Mayo game, uh, the Connacht League match. And again, you're looking at seven, six and a half. No official figure given, but six and a half. So there's an appetite there for people to get back out. And obviously, there are 12 new managers as well. So hope springs eternal. 100%. And you would just like to think, imagine what would happen if you had league fixtures on in the middle of the summer and how good the games would be if you matched the structure with the actual weather and the stuff like that. Uh, I should say congratulations, Jack. Uh, Jack Cooney, of course, you're listening. if you're listening to us on the radio, Westmead manager. As Colin mentioned, the O'Byrne Cup final last weekend. You won it, you beat Dublin. Like, obviously, with Dublin, Jim Gavin was on the sideline. They've still got to get all their players back. But it is still a Dublin team fighting to get on that squad to go for the five in a row this year. So it was a bunch of hungry lads, a top-class team. Uh, how did it feel? Like it surely must have felt like a feather to the cap immediately. It was great. It was great to win it. We, had, we didn't win it in 31 years, uh, so it was good. And um, again, playing any Dublin team and a lot of lads who would have taken the field last Friday is probably the biggest crowd they've played in, played against to date. So it's good experience for them. We didn't start out with any great ambition of winning the O'Brien Cup uh, before Christmas, but. 
we just took each game as it came and then when you get to the final of course you want to win it so we were delighted to win it is it true you got a guard escort to the game we did <laughs> a nice treat <laughs> good preparation for a big croke park game yeah well it's you know friday evening traffic and yeah. you know you need to get everything right in terms of your pre-match meal and all to bring all the sports science stuff into it so um Time is important and you need to be in control of your time, so this, the guard escort was a good way of doing that. I think sometimes there's too much of an emphasis to get over the pre-season too quickly or to get over the league too quickly, uh, certainly when it comes to say Division 1 and Division 2 sometimes, that ultimately when it comes to these sort of results, you've got you to take the, the wins on their merits as well and appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. We, like, again, we, we were delighted yeah. to win it and we've uh, a lot of young fellas in uh, training and preparing what is at the moment and a good experience for them. And hopefully create a bit of a stir with the supporters in Westmead, you know, because they've been uh, crying out for, for something like this for, for a while. So we'll take it. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, Wayne Kieran's you're the new loud manager. You're very welcome to the studio this afternoon. Uh, would you go along with the idea that the next 10 weeks or so, from your own perspective, is possibly the, be the biggest 10 weeks of the season, especially when it comes to development in the future? Yeah, the, the, the column nailed it really. It's, it's, it's the really only barometer we have of where we are at the moment and how we're going to improve or how we will improve. And obviously, due to the fact that we came down last year, relegated from Division 2, we certainly want to um, try and stabilise the ship. And, you know, it's, the, 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 the National League period for us is without doubt the most important period, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, like, obviously we've kind of been blue in the face down through the years of talking about why that shouldn't be the case and we can talk about championship structures all day, but ultimately if you talk about this being the most important part of your season, there is also the element of peaking at the right time. Whereas if you ask somebody in Division 1 they need to peak for July, August, is it a case where yourself and, the, and your sports science teams are actually trying to get your teams to peak for whatever it may be, February, March, maybe the, start of, the very start of April? Well, uh, there's an awful lot of debate about that, but I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily any well there is there's there's a knack of trying to peak twice you know what I mean you want to be obviously be ready for this weekend for the intense period in the National League but that's not to say that you can't restructure and periodize your training to regroup and peak again come end of May time so I know it's difficult with the club demands and April's designated as a club month now it makes it even more challenging but I think if you have your periodisation right throughout the whole season, there's no reason why you should be on a dip towards the championship because you had a good league or how, however your league campaign may go. It's, it takes a lot of work, obviously, but um, you know, you're, you're trying to you know, peak at those particular times. What's the most challenging thing about being a new inter-county manager? Um, well, there's a lot of things, really. Um, I think, it, from my point of view, it's totally different than working at the minor level. Um, the minor level and I noticed that Peter Keane um, and Kerry um, and I would imagine the profile in his job would be a lot greater than the likes of mine but he came from minor level and he, he described the difference between night and day and I'd probably go along with that like there's um, there's an awful a lot more actions on you um, compared minor sort of goes under the radar but um, it's just the amount of time and the amount of boxes you need to be to have ticked and you know, and the list goes on and on, and that's why you know we were saying it's delighted to actually get to the games this weekend. <laughs> Jack, obviously you've been involved with many senior intercounty setups. You've been involved with Pawdy, been involved with Roy Gallagher, uh, up in Donegal as well. Has it surprised you in terms of actually being the manager? How much extra time it takes, or is it fairly? Have you taken it in your stride? And I think what you need to do is make decisions, you know, and, and move on to the next decision. And uh, also, I'd be very conscious that you're you're dealing with a, a panel of players. And their time is precious, so you don't want to be wasting their time. So you're trying to maximise or, or get the maximum value out of their time. So 
I certainly think there's a lot of decisions to be made so you just have to make them and then move on to the next one yeah for sure when it comes to the, to the players and to their time it is precious and sometimes the players don't feel it's worth it or anything like that has there been any issues with you in terms of getting players to recommit for Westmead this year no thankfully not no um, uh, some players probably coming back uh, at different starts than others but the uh, response has been very very good and very positive and um, a lot of the younger players that come in then just are very happy to be part of the setup. And again, learning from the older players that have been there for a number of years. So, um, no, it's at the moment that was pretty good. Yeah, that's interesting. Is that a culture that you tend to kind of persuade inside in, inside in the camp at the moment that the younger fellas can learn from the older fellas? That sometimes it's better for a hands-off approach when it comes to what they can actually pick up in training. I think so. They're, they're there all the time, and we encourage it. Uh, and they're there uh, preparing with the lads and training with the lads in the gym, on the pitch, and so on in in the video room. So, it's. It's unusual now for a player to come in first on his first season and make and make the team or make a big impact, uh, but um, there are exceptions to that. I, I agree, but typically now that they're coming in and they need to they need to get blooded in for the first season or two, and then they can make make uh, establish themselves in the team. Colin, we've been speaking there over the last couple of minutes about the idea that this is a huge few weeks for teams. Probably anyone outside of the Elite Six or so that actually have designs on winning Sam Maguire could potentially be the biggest part of their year. There are designs on the two-tier championship over the next couple of weeks. Are they still in place? Because I know everything's got overshadowed by the rules. Put off till next year. Put off till next year. What is the exact... Uh, it's put off. There, was, there, 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 are, there, there are probably two uh, possible scenarios that they're, that they're looking at. One, and... Obviously, the provincial championships will stay in place. After that, the decision must be taken as to whether you divide Division 3 or four and 4 teams uh, straight after the provincial championships and put them into a, a, a second-tier championship, or do you wait and divide them after two rounds of qualifiers? Now, there's a bigger consultation process, from what I understand, to take place. Uh, my understanding was that it would have been decided at this Central Council meeting gone by last weekend as to what... They would, what they were going to put forward to Congress, mm. but it, from what I gather, it's not on the agenda this year. So we're waiting another 12 this months. consultation later in the year. It could possibly be at a special Congress in September, possible. I don't know yet. Maybe with some of these current rules could be brought into place, into play at a special Congress, and maybe then. But there will be a longer consultation uh, period with counties and with players, because it seems that 60% of players polled are now in favour, I think, 60% something I don't think like we got the breakdown of who they were in terms of what teams they played for. Though, not sure, so not sure but uh, I, I do detect that there are, is uh, a slight mood change from where it was a few years back towards uh, a second-tier competition. There is a, a, a change back. If you, you know, uh, certainly speak to the likes of Michael Quinn from Longford. He's favourably disposed. Obviously, he's only, he's only one, but Leitrim would also be in favour. I'm, I'm, I'm only picking, uh, picking out here, but there is... And certainly from the Gaelic Players Association, their feedback was that players in that division, those two divisions, would be more favourably disposed. But whether the cut comes mm. after the provincial championships, uh, which was in place in 2007 and 2008, I think when um, Wicklow might have won it one year. Uh, yeah, 07, 08, I think they split and there was only three rounds of qualifiers and it didn't really work out. So whether that comes after two rounds of qualifiers, that's the decision. That's what's on, on the table at the moment. That could change with consultation, there may be. But there is, there is a, a more of a move towards that. I'm not sure how, you know, you're both in Division 3, obviously you have ambitions to, to go up, how, how that would suit. 
Obviously, I would think the majority would want to stay in the mainstream competition for as long as possible and then maybe cut to a second tier after two rounds, I suspect. But that would lead to more games. I mean, you're, you, on, if you base it on last year's championship, you could have 11 more championship games. So you're throwing 11 more championship games into the mix, albeit you're still aligning it with a, with a mainstream championship in terms of when you fix them. But it is throwing more games into the inter just more work for the GA writers, that's all. It's, it is, and uh, obviously, you're, you know, you're, it, it increases. I mean, they've increased in football by, by eight, obviously, and this could be another 11, potentially. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. And there are many more games in the Hurling Championship, I think up to 16 if you, when, you, when you go through. So there's yeah. more games. So it is ironic that two years ago or three years ago when, uh, when the GA set out to try and restore the balance between club and county, that one of the solutions has been to increase the number of county mm. games. It's, it's just yeah. the way it's worked out and it's not ideal. No. Wayne, what do you think when anybody mentions a two-tier championship? Um, well, I definitely think everybody should have a shot at the, at the, big, at the big one, whether that's provincial or the All-Ireland qualifier. So, if that would stay, you know, in place, I'd be in favour for that. But I think it's difficult to gauge the appetite um, about if if you do go out, if you lose your first two qualifiers, it's difficult to gauge the appetite of where you want to go on further, or whether you know you have the appetite in terms of where clubs be pulling up players. And they, as soon as leg, legacy-wise, like likes in our county, as soon as Loud's finished, they want the club championship to run off straight away. So I'm thinking how that would work logistically in my own county, like, but. Um, I think the opportunity for for the more games would be would be welcome um, as long as they're promoted right and they're they're given the standing that they, they really deserve. Like that's the key point. How do you do that? Well, Colin mentioned there if if they run them all off at the same time as the the main All Ireland series, you know, maybe have double headers and I'm not sure the logistics of that how that would work. But you know, you, you need to you need to promote these games and you need you need to make sure that these games aren't forgotten about basically. There is a, a chapter that it could fall into the old Tier 2 Championships, which are, of course, kind of uh, gotten rid of fairly quickly. The, the, there are, all the proposals are fairly r reminiscent of that, aren't they? Like, I, I'm not sure, is there an idea that you can come up with until you actually see it and you actually work on it over a period of time that you actually have the Tier 2 Championship and it becomes a brand of its own almost? Yeah, exactly. It's going to have to develop its own sort of culture. I remember the Tommy Murphy Cup was one of them uh, a long time ago. I remember Loud winning it actually in Crow Park. So, you know, I think there's, um, if, if, it, if it's developed right, I think there could be an appetite for it. But I go back to my original point is how are we going to fit these extra games in, in around the club schedule? And I think that's the real thing that's going to cause, you know, nightmares for fixture secretaries around the country. And it goes back to the wider point then which is a major argument or a major discussion about the whole calendar of how we're going to, um, you know, develop that. So, um, but, you know, I, as a, you know, as a loud man, I, would, I think what's going to benefit loud football is more and more games against top opposition to learn, OK, we mightn't have that many wins against the top, top teams, but as long as we, you know, are competitive, we're improving and... You know, that would be key to me as well. So I would like the old structure to stay in some sort of place. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with Wayne there. It's, uh, stick with the old structure and then split it. Um, but I think it needs to be supported and it needs to be marketed properly. Um, and I think uh, there has to be a long-term commitment to it then as well, both from the administrators and from the counties. So, mm. And I also agree with Wayne as well. Where does the club fit into all of this? Uh, then it becomes... Um, a debate on is, is the club season getting pushed further and further towards Christmas or towards the end of the year and I don't think that's fair either 
So um, I think there's a lot of debate still to be had to, to be had on it. But at the moment, give us a crack at the, at the championship proper, if you want to call it that. And by I don't have a problem then going for uh, another competition, but commit to it, um, give it its proper value, and um, definitely recognise it. I think that's probably why it's been pushed back to later in the year, so that there is a better consensus uh, taken from managers, players, other stakeholders to see how best it could work. Uh, I think the preference would be for a cut after the provincial championships. They would feel that that would... Are we married to the idea of the provincial championships? Well, in the short term, yeah, and maybe even in the mid-term, long term. I I think the way demographics are going, I think they'll be obsolete in, in a number of years. I couldn't say I couldn't say how long, but the population flow is from west to east and from north to east, and I see uh, a situation in you know maybe a decade. I don't know, maybe even shorter than that, where just some counties know they have no chance of winning the provincial championship, and and that'll happen in the east too, because obviously. It's hard to see. So many counties are locked out of winning a Leinster championship uh, uh, in the short term, I think. And that's, that's reality. There's no getting away from that. Dublin have such a, a strong hold on it that it could, force, it could force change if they continue to win their provincial championship at ease. And if Kerry continue to win it at ease, as they have for the last number of years, you could see, you could see change down the line. I don't know where. Obviously, it's been teased out to maybe four-eighths divisional structure, something like that. But... It's an annual argument mm. that keeps on rolling and will continue to roll. And by the sounds of things, it's going to come back uh, in full flow at the end of this year. Oh, it, I would think so. It yeah. did kind of go under the radar, as I mentioned at the start of this discussion, yeah. because of the rules over the last couple of weeks. It's been such a big topic mm. over the last three, four months, really, at this stage, as to whether or not the hand pass rule would make it, and then eventually it didn't make it. How difficult has it been for you, when We might start with you in terms of trying to coach a team to get ready for the Oberon Cup, for the National League, not knowing what rules would be in place. Yeah, it was very difficult, actually, and it was, it was very difficult for me own personal point of view to coach at all you know when you're used to coaching for so long in terms of the old set of rules and then you know having to go into a bone cup when you're in a new job when you're trying to get you know a panel together and you're trying to you know get your head around these rules and then as you say we weren't sure they were definitely going to come in so we did do a little bit of work on them we didn't obsess over them and um, we took the chance that the hand pass rule wasn't really going to affect our National League and thankfully that has turned out to be the case. Right, so you didn't practice with it at all? Well, we did practice with it, but we didn't obsess over it. You sure. know, we, 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 our condition games were still based around, let's say, the old set. Um, but Did you, Jack? Did, did Westmeath uh, practice with the new rules? I would say initially for the first game or two we did, for sure. Um, we, did it consume all our training? No. Um, again, focusing on condition games, mm. where you'd be, you'd be going over and above three hand passes. Yeah. But then you'd address it closer to the game and and the other rules as well. We would have probably kept. Again, we made a judgment call on it, and we thought where what rules are going to stick and what rules are not going to stick, and we tried to focus in on those. Um, but certainly the three hand pass, we were weren't sure what it was going to stick, what it was going to stay on. So. We didn't, we didn't uh, implement it an awful lot in training, to be honest. Do you think it would have changed your mindset as a manager? Yeah, I think it definitely would. I definitely think you would have had to come up with different ways to build your phases, to do different things in your game, to build your attacks, to how you defend. I thought it would have had a massive impact, but I don't necessarily think it would have had a positive impact on the game overall. Um, like it go, For me, it goes back to the situation where the steering committee wants to reach an outcome of a certain amount of things but there's an awful lot of other people an awful lot of stakeholders don't want the same outcome like 
you know what I, I know you said it's been done to death but the steering committee wanted a ratio of um, the hand passes to foot passes to um, decrease um, and but you know I, I don't really mind whether there's never any kick passes in a football match I just want me players to make a good decision mm. regardless of whether it's a hand pass or a kick pass or I guess know, they were thinking about the neutral in that situation rather than from the Brit well uh, yeah but I have to look at it from a selfish point of view and what it means to my team and you know our team and um, you know I, I was glad I was glad it went um, you can live with the other rules um, even though I think the rationale behind some of the other ones, I, I don't particularly agree with either. Like the sideline rule, the rationale behind the sideline rule kick is to create more contested possessions. Like as a coach, you know that's what I'm trying to avoid. And I think maybe that's maybe that's what my point is. The outcome goals of the steering committee and players and managers are totally different. Yeah, and that's why we had this sort of, uh, I guess, a bit of a debate, particularly in the, in the pages of the newspapers over, over the past couple of weeks, uh, this idea that managers perhaps had too much of a voice in all of this and the committee was, uh, was being swayed by this. And Colin knew the figures uh, in the Irish Independent this week that it was 25-23, that like, mm. there's a huge potential that if one person there was swayed by what a manager said, uh, it could have changed the entire uh, face of, of the hand pass rule or had not been swayed. It could have been 24-all and then you would have had a, a casting vote. Yeah, but I think it was only 60% in favour at the outset so that's probably a drop of only 10% and in a room full of what is it 50 was there 50 people there 10% is 5 so it was a small drop a lot of people did did hold their ground but obviously a, f a few did and I suppose some of the reasoning was well we said we would experiment for a longer programme and we should stick by that and let the evidence be produced in full now the evidence uh, up to last weekend was uh, it had set out what they intended it to do and that was to restore. I, I don't think at the outset it was to do anything about the blanket defence. Maybe that was a consequence of it, but there was on average 100 more kicks in a game and 100 less hand passes in the game. Now, Wayne said he doesn't mind what, what the, that ratio is as long as players make good decisions. And I suppose the committee were coming from a different viewpoint is uh, how does a game look? Now you might say some of those kicks were back passes. There was a, a five percent increase in back passes, and that's inclusive of the inclusive of the volume of kicks. And some of them are very short kicks as well. And that's that's all that's all accepted. But I think when so much analysis went into it at the outset that I just felt that the experiment and maybe it was going nowhere. And accept that too that maybe it was going nowhere and maybe not having the desired impact as well. But it was doing what it set out to do, and that was to restore the balance between hand passes and kick passes. And I think if you ask spectators, maybe it was. And look, I think the issue is if you could have divided, restricted the hand pass in a certain area of the field, and that's the middle third, where a lot of the pedestrian hand passing chains obviously uh, slow up a game. And that's be because of defensive, defensive alignment. But and you could have let it flow limitlessly in the, the final third. But you're asking referees, and I think ultimately referees the task in counting hand passes was too great and too challenging, even though they were only missing, on average, according to Rob Carroll's statistics, 1.6. The average was too great and it was denying uh, goal chances too. And that was the anecdotal visual evidence that maybe managers were basing, basing it on as well. But when you go to that amount of work and you abort uh, an experiment not even halfway through, I just feel it's a lost opportunity maybe to analyse and see what, how other trends are developing. 
Yeah, like you definitely can't blame you. Like I definitely can't blame your perspective, Wayne, because you are an intercounty manager. It's not up to you as to how a game looks. I'm sure, Jack, you're on Wayne's side of the fence here that you don't care what the brand of, of Gaelic football is. Maybe, maybe you do on a neutral level, and, and when the season is over, you will. But for now, all you care about is Westmead and winning games, and you don't care how many hand passes that takes. Yeah, exactly. And and again, it goes back to that decision making that Wayne mentioned earlier, uh, and that's that's what you're looking for: improved decision making, and that's what you're training for. And it'd be interesting to go back to Column's point. I'd like to see a breakdown on the the additional kick passes because to me a lot of them were short, two or three meter kick passes that you don't coach and yeah. you you're not coached you don't coach them from a very young age yeah. so mm-hmm. kind of goes against the, the game itself uh, and then there's an awful lot of just kind of checkered decision making where you're in the attack and then you have to stop and come back just takes the impetus out of it so. Yeah. Um, but look, the new rules are there now, and and we'll go with them in the league. Yeah, and I, I mean, like I might be naively hopeful here, but I think the offensive mark in particular is going to be one of these rules that we look back on and say we should have. Been, this should have been the rule we were getting excited about, not the hand passing rule, because this is the one that can actually affect real change. And uh, I'm not sure if, you, if you're reading the Aidan O'Rourke coaching column this week, but he kind of put it down into three big changes that could happen as a result of this. And one of the changes that he mentioned, which I didn't even think of, was. The per- perhaps the changing of the role of the midfielder that suddenly the uh, the athleticism isn't the most important thing it'll still be important of course it will but the kick passing ability of people in the middle third will become vital I'm not sure if that's something you've been working on uh, in training yeah well uh, I think uh, the interesting thing for me about the offensive model and Colin mentioned it how you know, difficult it was for the referees to officiate the hand pass. I think it's more difficult for the referees to officiate that one because he's an awful lot of variables to cover. You know, where where the ball was kicked, has it been kicked 20 metres? You know, has the player decided he's going to take a mark or he's going to play on? I think that's a little bit of grey area that has to be, be cleared. I think we've seen that in the Mechanic Cup game where, um, you know, there's a possibility everybody stops and then he plays on. So, but I think uh, overall in the game, yeah, and you're, you're talking about the, the role of the midfielder, I think there's there's an opportunity to, there certainly to stretch the game more, so to make you go from middle to front a little bit quicker possibly. And again, it comes all the way down to what your game plan is and how you want to build your attacks. But it's something I certainly could, can live with and I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be against it at all. We've done a little bit of work on it. Um, you know, we've good guys inside that can that have good movement and good ball winning ability. So, um, yeah, that one will that one will be very interesting and something that we, you know we we'll see. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's I think there is a grey area there as to whether a player at what stage does he when the when the mark is awarded uh, at what stage does he decide does he play on does he take a second and I think mm-hmm. that's going to be very very hard to adjudicate for referees too just as challenging perhaps yeah. I think there'd be more emphasis on it now. One of the interesting findings of the of the review was that. Uh, it was felt that defences spread out a lot more to cover so that they didn't give away cheap or soft marks. So that maybe stretched defences a bit more, perhaps. I don't know whether you would have found that, that they spread out so that no one was loose and no one picked up a soft mark. Mm. So I, I don't know whether that's a consequence of, and maybe that will help, maybe to just to uh, to tease out and untangle mass defence. Yeah, I think the bit. delivery of the ball from the middle third is going to be important as well because... Um, we probably look to hit the hit the space, so it's the bounce pass into the moving sure. forward. For where now you're looking to hit the player, or hit to where the player is run, running to, so they can catch it. So it's a different mindset there. Yeah, I suppose the counterpoint execution. to that is that you don't want to give the defensive mark away either. So hitting the space at least uh, avoids them picking up the mark. So I guess I've talked myself out of this point that it could actually change the game as well. Yeah, but like it goes back to the player's decision making again. You know, yeah. uh, you know, he, 
we, regardless of what people, you know, whether people are like it or not, the managers and uh, the players have this possession mentality where they don't want to give the ball away. And that's probably why the whole discussion of the passive hand passes and stuff came about in the first place. Everybody is, you know, is obsessed with possession-based game. And, you know, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And that's why it goes back to what I was saying. I don't, I don't think there's generally... There's that much wrong with the game that needs so much changing. Like if just an example I have in my head is how Dublin closed out the All Ireland final last year. They actually went. They were in an attacking situation. They kept possession all the way back to their corner back and came all the way back up again. Also, as May was trying to win the game at the most crucial phase of the most crucial game at the most crucial time, they were making you know fantastic plays. So you enjoy uh, that? Yeah, I think that that's brilliant football. You know what I mean? So um, it's all subjective. Yeah, well, that's it. Beauty it is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I, I think, I, I think the offensive mark ha- has definitely scope for uh, to 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 have a positive impact in the game. So I think you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're listening to the voice of Wayne Kieran's the new Louds manager. We've also got Jack Cooney of Westmead and Colum Keys of the Irish Independent uh, with us in studio this afternoon. If you've got anything you want to get off your chest, you can tweet us at Off the Ball or comment on the stream if you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube. You can text us as well using the text number 53106. Uh, Wayne, I wanted to ask you a very simple question, and, and I'll ask you in a moment, Jack. What is the role of the intercounty manager at the moment? Well, it's a, it's a very wide, wide base on that one. Um, well, obviously, it's, it's to get a panel of players, to the best players together in your county, um, condition them, school them, um, get them into a situation where they're fit, they're organised, and they can display their talents, really. Um, you know, that's the very general view. As we spoke about earlier, there's an awful lot of detail behind, you know, how you bring all those facets together. And an awful lot of time spent on the phone, talking, travelling, games, training. Um, but... You know, I would say it's an enjoyable role. It's difficult. It's certainly a little bit more difficult than I thought. I'd readily admit. But um, is there any particular element that is a bit more difficult than you thought it would be? I think uh, Jack mentioned the, the amount of decision, the decisions you have to make, and you know, you obviously have to stand by all those decisions in terms of, you know, players, who plays, who gets minutes, you know, who needs to up it in training, who needs feedback, who needs analysis. There's so much stuff and. I suppose one of the things I, I would have definitely learned from last year being involved in the management team was the amount of feedback players require. Um, you know, in terms of, again, the difference between the younger players and the senior players. The senior players require feedback pretty constantly. You right. know, so that's very, very important, I feel, to make sure you give them that feedback and, you know, whether it be positive or negative, or whether it's two stars on a wish or, you know, whether you keep them on side. And so that in itself is very time consuming. So, you know, there's. There's an awful lot to it. That's very interesting because I would have thought the younger players would be more would need the feedback more. Or are you saying the older players are just more eager for it because they've been around the game a bit longer? I, I think I think the older players want to know exactly where they are and where they're, where they're going and you know why you're not in the team and why you're not getting minutes and why and that's to me that's very positive. You know they do want to know that, and you have to try and you know work on their limiting factors and you have to try and improve them and only with that analysis and feedback. You know, we 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 we'll all keep travelling down the same road, but we'll not increase our speed unless, you know, we improve on certain things. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's the feedback is certainly something that we're trying to do uh, more and more, without a doubt. And are those players coming to you directly face to face, or are they dropping you a WhatsApp, giving you a call, or how does all, all of the above, really, all of the above, um, all different ways, all different mediums. So, um, you know, I think it's a healthy situation to have where everybody can be, approach one another and. 
the rest of the management team that we have now are, are absolutely excellent at delivering the feedback as well, including our fitness guy, our analysis guy. So I think it's very important to have that collaboration or else, you know, the role of the inter-county manager just becomes, you know, too time consuming, full yeah. stop. It seems that being a great delegator is important. It seems that being a great communicator, as you mentioned there with feedback, is important. Would you agree with all the above, Jack? Yeah, I think uh, there's probably two streams to inter-county management now. You can have the actual out-and-out -out manager with a coaching team around the manager, or you can have an inter-county management team where the manager is more of a coach and then brings in an organisation or a plan, kind of planning around that. So. And which uh, situation is best meeting? Um well, we've kind of a combination of both. Like I, I like I, I like been out working with the players and been on the pitch and so on and so forth. That's that's, that's the way I've always done it. Um, and then there's a huge amount of skill sets required to plan and organise and implement and communicate. So it's important that all those skill sets are met within the coaching management team, and then they're carried out, and that the players feel that there's an understanding and there's clarity there in what you're trying to communicate and what you're trying to achieve so there's there's a lot in it there's yeah. a lot of time spent on the phone but uh, you just you just have to be organized and you just have to go at it that's what, that's what you buy into I always think and you know when as you drop down the divisions a manager has to become a great salesman to actually sell the product of intercounty to convince players that is that true where, where it's a movement to convince players because if you look at the you know, obviously, first-time managers out this new—it's it, it, all very new. So maybe it's a little bit easier. But as time goes on, and you know, I think I, I think it's a challenge from Division Two down. You can see the figures of the drop-off. You know, you, even in the SRI report, your 35% of a, a, a squad changes from year to year, right across the board. So I think there is there is a bit of that, and to really sell the message to commit to this, it's. Uh, it can be a tough job in that regard, I would think. I think, that, number one, the world has become a smaller place and that's, there's obviously doing a lot more travelling and so on. And I think probably um, a generation or two ago, an inter-county career could have lasted 10, 12, 14 years. That's not so popular or so common now, mm. where guys might just say, I'm going to commit to this five, six, seven years and that's it, and then I'm moving on. I have other things to prioritise. But it's also very important to realise that it's it takes... Uh, their lifestyle needs balance because the, it could be their occupation, it could be their family, it could be something different. So it's about where that fits in at a particular time, at that moment in their life, and do they have the time to commit to it? I, I think this whole thing about commitment to inter-county football is probably over-talked. I think they do it because they enjoy it. Yeah. And um, they want the high standards and they want to prepare to those levels because they're competitive by nature. And, but nowadays like I said earlier to come in and make a massive impression in your first year it's it's unlikely because there's so much conditioning required now and get the game has got has gotten so fast that you just need to get to that level and that just takes time it's interesting that you say they're talking about the enjoyment for players because Kieran Martin actually mentioned that after the Oberon Cup final last uh, week that this is probably his most enjoyable season yet in Westmead Jersey. What have you done to sort of create that culture of enjoyment? Um, we, we try and give the guys the last plenty of time off. That's the first thing, you know, and still get a, a, an amount of work done that's required. Um, and we just we just have a bit of crack and we play a lot of football in training, you know, um, and when the hard training has to be done, we do it. But a lot, a lot of it is just trying to create a very enjoyable environment for the lads to 
prepare and compete uh, and try and create occasions where they can have a laugh and so on and so forth. And you, you can do that in loads of different environments and loads of different occasions, you know. So, But I suppose we were lucky we won the Auburn Cup. So when you're winning, it's enjoyable anyway. Sure. So um, I suppose the, both of those go hand in hand. Because there's so yeah, many... The ice cream van in, like, John, just about John, John Kiley did, the Limerick <laughs> manager last summer, pull up. Literally, as a, as a, a It's a big cold for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but there are so many anecdotes like that, that it is a small thing, that the John Kiley's ice cream van. But there are so many small little anecdotes, like the Dublin team and how famously Jim Gavin tries to promote their outside of the dressing room yeah. careers and college uh, courses and things like that. And John Conlon saying that he was playing the best football or best hurling of his uh, career last, last summer because he was building a house and he wasn't always focused on... Yeah. Yeah. the hurling that this idea that to be a serious team you need to be serious just isn't true no I, I think there's only so much scope in a, in a player or a footballer's mind where he can be totally intense and focused like so you know what we try and do even on the likes of match day like right up until you know we go out for um, absolute throw in like 20 minutes before throw in to try to be as relaxed as possible because you're asking them to be totally focused and intense for 70 plus minutes so I don't know what the human mind is more capable of doing that in one go to be you know absolutely zeroed in and on and the game so it's the same with training like we try as you said we try to have the crack and be relaxed about it and get the work done and you know we've trying to have mechanisms in place to try and do that and you know, we've walked time or we've down time when the slagging can start and they definitely have to enjoy it. Like there's there's no doubt about it. And it's up to the likes of us, I suppose, to try and create that environment or as as Colin mentioned, though, then you know, if it's very, very serious and it is a serious business of course, but if it's very, very serious to sell, you know, to them to actually be there is, is more difficult. Can I ask out of interest, have either of you imposed drinking bans into the squads? No. I've never imposed one. Like they're probably mature enough to look after themselves and they realise the damage it does at certain times and, and know when to enjoy themselves and how important that is as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're, they're a thing in the past. Like if, you know, if there's somebody not performing well in the body fat tests or a fitness test, you know, the, the fitness coach will be on to them pretty quickly. And, but no, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I would be one to welcome actually for the lads to go out in the night out and they have done. So to try and build a bit of camaraderie in the group. So... Um, no, if if we progress maybe to the All Ireland semi final or final, we might impose a drink on. <laughs> I think it's about trusting the players. You know, like they're they're given so much of their time to you. Yeah. Uh, you just you just trust them to make those decisions. For sure, uh, Wayne. I wanted to ask you a bit about soccer because obviously a lot of your coaching background comes from soccer. But I see on Twitter as well that you lived as a baby for a short time in the same estate in Tala as I Stephen Kenny. I'm very surprised with that myself, actually. Um, yeah, uh, Stephen, I think it was an interview with Paul Kimmage, yeah. Yeah, which I found very, very good, fascinating, right. actually. Um, and yeah, he just before I started primary school, me, myself and my family, um, as my dad was working in Tala, we lived in Millbrook Lawns. So then, of course, Stephen Kenny comes out and says he grew up in Millbrook Lawns. I just thought it was... Uh, Fascinating. It'd be, it'd be nice if your managerial career followed the same path as him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting when you think about that, and like the, the piece that was was written at the weekend. I'm not sure how long in Millbrook Lawns. Just did. before I started school, so I, I think it was up till four. 
Right, okay, because he, he talks about the, the stigma of being attached to Tala in the 80s and stuff like that, so you, you wouldn't call yourself a Tala native? I wouldn't, no. I, the, when people slag me about being a culture, I say I'm born in the Coombe, like, so I'm re <laughs> I really am a dub. Like, but like uh, my auntie, um, I spend an awful lot of time in Tala because my auntie's still there, and you know, I, I would never have thought there was a stigma involved with Tala, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it was interesting that you mentioned that because obviously you're big into your soccer, you're big into, I think from just listening to you on uh, the Loud podcast, this is Loud podcast, uh, it seems that you've got a great interest in other coaches from other sports as well, and I guess that just helps that you've had a cross pollination of sports in your own coaching career. Yeah, sure. Like I'm, I'm a soccer fanatic. Like I've always been 50-50 through when I was playing, and not to a great high level or anything. But when I was playing, um, you know, I always loved playing soccer at university and club level. And I definitely, I actually did start out coaching uh, in the soccer front. So I definitely think you can learn. There's no doubt about it. Like at the end of the day, the, the dynamics. You know, different game, obviously, but the dynamics can be very similar in coaching points. Mm. Do you look at someone like Jim McGuinness and think that's a great moment for GA coaches? Fantas fantastic guy. Um, I'd love to meet him at some, some stage. Um, very, very progressive man. I know people mightn't be that okay with his style that he introduced, and, and actually not an awful lot of people copied it, but um, it just shows you that his coaching mind and his philosophies were top, top notch. You see, you see where he is now, like he's a you know, professional soccer coach. Mm. It's interesting that we talk. Uh, we spoke a few moments ago about the idea of WhatsApping the players and chatting to players and stuff like that. I think certainly from reading Jim McGuinness's book, that was probably the first manager who really took that role on and immersed himself into it. The amount of time that he said he spent on the phone actually talking to the players and almost the idea of the intercounty manager, which is what this slot started off as, becoming almost a psychologist but without kind of getting into the science of it, uh, a kind of a friend for the players in a different way. Like, would you agree with that, that he was a sort of pioneer in that, that respect? Definitely. Like, you, you, can, you can add that to your role of duties for sure. the county manager, a psychologist <laughs> as well, and a counsellor some stages. Um, yeah, he. I think he, he was pioneering in his playing style. Now maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody in the past, in the distant past, maybe had similar ideas. But from my idea of watching coaches, he definitely was pioneering in the way he set up and ultimately he proved successful to win All-Irelands. But um, I, th I think he's definitely somebody that we could all look up to and learn from, definitely. Yeah. Jack, I saw a quote from you recently saying that good defensive coaching is never recognised. Uh, I dare say Wayne would appreciate uh, good defensive coaching. He appreciates Jim McGuinness big time. It, 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 is a, it is an interesting phrase, though, isn't it? it, it or it's, it's an interesting thing to say because it's true. It, it is good defensive coaching. doesn't tend to just not get recognised at the moment uh, with the trend of media. It actually tends to get slaughtered. Yeah, there seems to be a negative term associated with, with defending or blanket defences or whatever. I think it's tactically intriguing, to be honest. Um, and it's a game of wits and it's about holding your nerve and it's about... Um, if and when you get the turnover, what you do there. So a lot of teams now are coached with the ball, without the ball. And I think the whole uh, philosophy of the game has changed over the last number of years where um, you're now defending as a team as opposed to defending as individuals or responsible for a particular player high up the pitch. So um, and I, I, I'm fascinated by all of that. I think it's really, really exciting. And would you, as a coach, or your coaches working underneath you, do a lot more sort of one-to-one -one training in terms of your defenders, in terms of tackling, in terms of that technique, or is it more as a unit, as a defensive unit? Uh, typically as a unit. You okay. try and, so you try and get everybody on the same page. They should have that skills by senior level. Yeah, and make those decisions collectively, as a, whether it's a small group or a larger group or whatever. So, um, And again, it's setting it up in training. It's about one particular mindset with the ball, one particular mindset without the ball, but... I, if I was to say two people who've 
changed the landscape of football over the last number of years. Jimmy Guinness is definitely one, and probably Stephen Cluxon is the second one. Yeah, for sure. There's no question about that. Colin, do the media give too much of a hard time to defensive coaching? I don't think so. I mean, it depends what element of media, but you know, I don't. I, I wouldn't see any any issue with it as long as uh, the transition or the the, the change from defence to attack is quick. Yeah, uh, I think that's the important thing. If, if that's if that's laboured, otherwise it's hard to watch. You know, if, if, if it's laboured, it's hard to watch. I'm only talking from a spectator's point of view. People appreciate good defence just the same way as they would appreciate good attacking as long as the movement out of defence is quick. Maybe it would be helped if they had to kick past the ball every uh, three hand passes. Would be a help. <laughs> and obviously that's better on the eye than a, than, than, than a hand pass. I would, I would feel that from looking at it. But that's, that's no. again, I appreciate the difference in where the lads are coming from. And when you're, sta when you're, <laughs> when you're, standing, when you're standing in the in the middle of a training pitch, it's obviously different. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, we obviously don't want to, and same with you, Jack, you don't want to give away anything here. But in terms of your philosophy, I think you're pretty free to talk about uh, your philosophy at the outset of the league. You mentioned that on that This Is Loud podcast as well. I think I've got, yeah, this is Loud Podcast, just to give them a plug. Yeah. It's a really good interview if you want to check it out. Um, you talk about attacking to a cost with the Loud Miners, which I thought was a very interesting phrase that you've probably learned from being a bit too gung-ho previously in your career. Uh, what's, the, what's the biggest takeaway from that to attacking to, the, to a cost? Well, uh, Colm just had to mention there the speed from defence to attack, but sometimes people forget about the, def the speed from attack back to defence, um, i.e. The, the attack to back to defensive transition as in coach speak. Um, but yeah, you have to get the balance right. There's no doubt about it. You want your speed going one way, but you have to make sure that you you know what there's a there's a we call it the reaction and recovery. You know there there's there's a a phase that goes on in the mentality of footballers that I feel is more difficult to go back to defensive situation rather than attack. When we win the ball, everybody wants to attack, but sometimes when we lose the ball, everybody doesn't want to, to do their work in defence. And so, you know, you have to really programme the, the players to really recognise that. And, you know, so while, whilst you want to attack as much as you possibly, you don't not let it cost you at the back. Like, so it's about creating that balance and that takes an awful lot of work, actually. Mm. You mentioned the, another very interesting thing on that podcast. Uh, it was about Dublin. I did want to get into Dublin a small bit, but I think we're kind of out of time. You said uh, about when the Dubs concede scores. So uh, when I kind of look at the teams who've had good success uh, against Dublin in terms of their kickouts, I kind of thought, uh, certainly from Kerry in 2016, they tended to push up after every score. But you've noticed a different quirk in how Dublin set up on their own kickouts. Yeah, well, not necessarily on their own kickouts, but in terms of if they concede a couple of scores in a row, you know, their shape is totally different. And you know, if if some elements of the media are given out about certain teams saying that they have 14 men behind the ball, they need to recognise that the likes of Dublin would have 14 men behind the ball at certain stages in the game, and that's because their organisation is so good, and they're like they're they're, they're programmed to react in certain ways at different instances of the game, and again that takes. A, an unbelievable amount of work to get that right and you know I find that fascinating and um, I find it amazing the way the, the coaching team and the manager has been able to deliver that to the players so um, you know you were talking about learning from Jim McGuinness you could definitely learn if you went to Crow Park every Dublin game you'd, you'd certainly learn mm. there's no doubt about that. Did you pick up a few things from the Auburn Cup final that, that you could apply if you were to come up against them this summer? I know it's a completely different team, completely man a completely different manager indeed, but uh, like I guess even just from studying what they had done in the previous weeks, I'm sure there are a couple of similarities. I, I think it'll take on a completely different dynamic if we were to meet them in in, 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 in the summer, but and you'd you'd take that on its merit and obviously I I hope a lot of those players that played in the Auburn Cup go on to make it or, or um and and see how the summer goes for them, but 
it's com- it'd be a completely different team, completely different game. The, the way you can you'd pr- approach it and, and and manage it for sure. Can you think about them at all at this at this point? Is, is it is it just too dangerous a beast to kind of have any sort of focus on, particularly when you just got the league in, in front of you? Well, that's it. It's all about the league football, but I suppose. It's hard for us, you know, to keep them out of our heads because there's a possibility we might play them in the championship if if we win our first game against Wexford. So, you know, um, it would be it be fantastic to to play them. Obviously, I I would welcome to play them, but obviously, as he said, there's too much football to be had between now and then to even think about it really yeah for sure well it's, it's been great uh, catching up with you lads Colin thanks many for coming in as well you're off to uh, Monaghan against Dublin this weekend yes and you before we came on air I should say Colin Key has listed off every single National League fixture that was happening this weekend <laughs> without a sheet of paper in his hand so that, that's incredible what, what's going to happen in that game uh, that'll be a tight game mm. obviously two years ago Monaghan beat Dublin albeit a Dublin team that already qualified last year Dublin teams don't give opportunities to anybody else, no matter who's, no matter at what stage of the season they're at. So any victory over any Dublin team is fully merited. I think it'd be tied up there, but I think Dublin are sending up a strong team with a lot of their frontline players. There might be four or five, maybe from the All Ireland winning team missing. So that that sends out a message that Dublin have a hard start to this league, and they certainly don't want anything diverting away from their path of not giving anyone a chance I think they'll really go for that and win that game just about just yeah. about because Monaghan are obviously you know a good a good test for Dublin at all times their home record isn't as good maybe as what it's made out to be they win a lot of games in the league and they've beaten Kerry twice on mm. the road they've won in Mayo they've won in Tyrone they've won in Donegal but I do think Dublin will get the job done even though they're not long that long, long back they have a lot of work done over many, many years that they can just switch in and maybe win a game like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jack, you're down in Offaly tomorrow at 2 o'clock in O'Connor Park. You're up uh, against Offaly and then it's Loud against uh, Longford and Drada tomorrow at half past two. So best of luck uh, for the weekend, lads. Best of luck thank for you. the season ahead. Colin Keyes, Jack Cooney, Wayne Kearns, thank you very much for joining us. We'll take a quick Thanks break. Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108.